As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Today's podcast is brought to you in part by the Moser Great American Bracket Race and Dream Team Challenge. Memorial Day weekend, Britt Cummings and Galen Rollison will host the inaugural Great American $20,000 Bracket Race and the Scoggin Dickey Dream Team Challenge at Memphis International Raceway. Check them out on Facebook to stay up to date with all updates and news. In addition, today's podcast is presented by the fifth annual Southern Big Bucks Nationals, promoted by Johnny Ezell and Cody Pollage, coming up February 8th through 11th at No Problem Raceway in Belle Rose, Louisiana. The event features box payouts of $10,000, $15,000, and $10,000 to win for a $450 weekend entry, along with no box payouts of $3,000 to win for all three days for the weekend entry of just $200. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. This week on What Everyone is Talking About. What everybody's talking about this week is a huge bombshell, I guess, that, Jed, I think yeah. you and I are a little bit removed from, just geographically, if nothing else, but I'm not sure that anybody saw this coming. It's basically the ceasing of operations of Old Bridge Township Raceway Park in Englishtown, New Jersey, as it pertains to drag racing. My understanding is that the facility will continue to operate. Apparently, there are various forms of motorsports contested at Englishtown, but no more drag racing. And that has been a staple facility of the NHRA for decades. Like, that's one of the core racetracks, in, in my yeah. opinion. 
Yeah, it is, Luke. Some of the most talented racers in our sport compete there on, a, I, I guess, what I thought was a weekly basis, but a regular basis at the least. And, um, you know, I know that's home to a, a lot of great racing on the drag racing scene and uh, really sad to hear that they're ceasing the drag racing operations. I know it's uh, affecting a lot of people in, in in our bracket racing circle, I've seen the Facebook post, uh, the farewells to English Town, the stories about the amount of time they've spent there and the the memories that they've made. So uh, my heart goes out to everybody that called that place home. I know it's got to be a devastating thing for you, but hopefully everybody finds them another place to compete and um, whatever English Town management is trying to accomplish, uh, maybe they'll accomplish it, but I uh, hate to see it go. Yeah, obviously you hate the news when any racetrack anywhere shuts down. Like that, that's never a good sign, and and particularly a place with that much panache and history behind it. I mean, English Town has hosted NHRA national events for I don't know the number. I would say more than forty, fifty years. And just the the stuff that pops to the top of my head with the Knapp family, like that was English Town was the introduction of Junior Dragster in the Junior Drag Racing League. Like that's where that began. It's the it's the place where Peter and Salviando cut their teeth, uh, among so many others. And there's so much history, so much has happened at that national event, at that facility over the years. Just like I say, a, a bombshell, kind of a shock to see it go. Yeah, it is. And uh, again, I'm sure everybody will find them another place to race, but really sad to see such a legendary drag strip shut down the operations, but I'm sure those regulars there will move on and find them another spot, and hopefully, again, English Town management gets what they're trying to get out of it, so let's talk about some better stuff, Luke. Yeah, on to brighter subjects, Big Jet. I think we've got a fun show lined up today. In fact, if this goes as well as I think it might, and we have as much fun with it, and hopefully our listeners have as much fun with it. I could see this becoming kind of a recurring segment on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. But the idea behind today's show is some fun, I guess, turn back the clock, for lack of a better term, stories. Yeah. Like, I don't know about you, Jed, I love listening in particular to some of the founding fathers, so to speak, of big dollar bracket racing and or the NHRA Sportsman classes talk about competing in yesteryear and the stories back when i don't know maybe i've romanticized it a little bit but they seem like from a little bit simpler time before we had motorhomes before we had rvs before everybody was touring the country and in huge rig and big races and they were obviously big races at the time but you're talking about in a lot of cases like multiple events in one weekend and everybody's kind of going back to the same motel after the race yeah you know i mean just fun stories i've always loved hearing the guys that were doing this what 20 30 40 years ago talk about what it was like then and that's kind of the idea behind this podcast like what comes to mind for me when when he talked about just telling fun stories like i go back not quite as far in time as what i'm talking about big jed but i think of like Steve Sisko always tells me the story that I've heard it several times about the first year that he went to the Florida Winter Series. And I don't think he would mind me sharing this. But like, I, And I wish if I'd have had the forethought of it, like we'd have had him on because he'll tell the story way better than I do. But 
Like Cisco shows up at Bradenton, typical Cisco fashion, like drove all night to get there, driving one of Anthony Bertozzi's cars, gets there as the race is ending on day one or two or whatever. Like he's there to race the next day and finds himself in the poker room at Bradenton, which was always, may still be, for all I know, the bottom floor of the tower that would routinely every night of the five day would host Dave Elrod and John LaBoose and Steve Cohen. And I mean, that whole Mm -hmm. eclectic group of characters and gamblers and nobody knows Cisco at the time because it's the first time that he's really raced in that part of the country. Long story short, like he walks out of there up several thousand dollars also in typical Cisco fashion, right? Absolutely. At two o'clock in the morning. And when he does, He's got nowhere to stay. Like, he's supposed to be staying in Anthony's motorhome, but I don't even think Anthony knew that he was there yet. And he didn't want to wake anybody up. So he winds up with thousands of dollars, like, tucked into his jacket, wrapped up in the jacket, and goes to sleep underneath Bertozzi's motorhome. And nobody realizes he's there until the next day when he's bragging about all the thousand dollars that he's won and slept under the slept under the motorhome. So like stuff like that, like <laughs> that just doesn't happen. I don't know. Maybe it does happen. It doesn't happen in my world in 2018. And I love hearing stuff like that. Yeah, those are great stories. I, I think some of our more experienced guests, the the David Rampies, the Dan Fletchers, the Clay Millikens, I, I think those guys and their interviews touched on a little bit of how things were back in the day. And I'm like you, Luke, I can't hear enough of those stories. Uh, really awesome. I would love to hear Cisco tell that. I haven't heard that story. So uh, <laughs> I would look forward to hearing that at some point. And we're going to have a guest today that's going to have his share of stories. He's been doing it a long time at a very successful level. We're going to have Sherman Adcock Jr. with us. We'll get to tell a couple of our stories and we'll get to hear a couple of stories from Sherman, which would be a great time. Yeah, absolutely. I I love listening to Sherman talk. So I hope that you guys have the uh, have the same opinion when this is over. Before we get to that, let's kick things off, Big Jed, with the secret performance. Who's hot? He's on fire! It's time for who's hot in sportsman drag racing. Secret performance. Who's hot? Secret performance is ready to tackle any of your engine building needs, big or small. Time is running out to take advantage of the 10% off of labor discount when you mention this podcast. The deal expires February 1st. Learn more about what the guys at Seabrook Performance can do for you by calling 785-286-6813. And don't forget to mention the podcast. January, but uh, I think this week's Who's Hot is a little, a bit of an obvious one. We actually gave an honorable mention a week ago to Doug Foley for about running the table at whatever practice tree event that he was at. I think we failed to mention the name of that event. So Mark, get on that for the, for the promoters of that event. Let's follow up later in the show and actually tell them where Doug was a week ago. But I believe he had two wins and a runner up in like three races at a practice tree race. He followed that up this week at the dragstressforsale.com event by winning, wasn't the main event, but it was a secondary event that would awarded a, an entry to the million dollar race. So Doug Foley, red hot with the right thumb at the practice tree races. Shout out to Doug. Shout out to This Is Bracket Racing Elite for basically a sweep of that event. We had two members, not only Doug, but also Zach Manuel, who won the main event. Both guys are members of Elite. So obviously what KB and I are doing, beating them over the head daily with um, practice tree challenges is paying off, at least in some regard. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say you guys should be very proud of that. And Doug, with another great weekend at the practice tree race, just a heck of a performance by him. That that practice tree racing is difficult too, Luke, as you know. I mean, man, you you got to have a little bit of luck, but it's everybody sets up pretty stupid tight, gets after it pretty good. So coming out on top like he's done back-to-back weeks has uh, been pretty darn impressive. So congratulations, Doug, for our Seabrook performance. Who's hot this week? It's time for the big interview on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. All right, guys, as promised, uh, joining us now is uh, a guy, I guess we could consider him old school. He's been doing it 30 plus years. His drivers won 10 NHRA division championships, two NHRA national championships. He has won the million dollar drag race. Very successful racer and guy that's been doing it a long, long time. Look forward to hearing some stories from the legend, Sherman Adcock Jr. Sherm, appreciate you joining us tonight. I appreciate y'all having me. Yeah, man, thanks for coming on. I feel bad because when we have someone of your status on the show, like I feel like we should have a deep, introspective interview, breaking down all facets of drag racing, and all we want is to tell some stories that make everybody laugh. So I apologize in advance for that. Um, (laughs) Sherm, I don't know about you, but I know among me and Jed, Jed is by far the better storyteller. So I'm hesitant to let him go first here, but I'm just looking at my notes and he's got some stuff that I have a feeling is going to be pretty entertaining. So Jed, you gave me way too many options here, but let's kick this off with, with your first Super Pro win. This one looks good. Yeah, my first Super Pro win was a great story. Now, as we were talking off air, uh, Sherman started in 85 uh, or so. And, you know, I look at Sherman as a legend. I mean, this is a guy that's won everything that I want to win in life and has done great things in his racing program. And I started a year before him in 1984. But I was at the tender age of 13. And one of my best stories that I actually re-listened to a few weeks ago here around the road was the passing tech at the Gators, which was in Sherman's car. So Sherman's probably not a podcast listener on a regular basis, but Sherman, you need to go back and find that and relive the story of me uh, getting through tech at the Gators in your hot rod because... That is the the most embarrassing moments episode, Sherm, and for any of our listeners that want to go back, that is a good one. Well, (laughs) about that same event, Jed also went through the Woody Adcock, which is my brother, driving school. (laughs) Woody Adcock driving school is very, and and I've been in it, so I know, I know where Jed was at. (laughs) It was was short and sweet. (laughs) It was very short and sweet. We Woody likes to get a plan and he, this is what we're going to do. We're going to hold one or two or whatever. He comes up there for first round. The first round of super stock was uh night, dark night. And if I remember right, Jed, you had to run Bob Dennis. That was actually second round, but yes, you're right. That was second round. You're right. You're right. And he, but long story, he gets to run Bob Dennis and he says, uh, they got him a plan. Well, Woody's watching and they're going above and above and above. So, and that's the way he would do me, especially back in the days in the super gas room. We didn't have a timer to, to roll the numbers out of. You were set. When you shut the door, it was done. You couldn't change anything. <laughs> but what he Jed rolled up there to the line and we done watched two or three of them. Jed walked, Woody walked back there and 
opened the door, grabbed a shoe polish out, dialed dead, jet up five. He said, make sure you can get there. He shut the door and walked to the water. I thought Jed was hyperventilating. We was going to have to get him out. He said, I can't do this. It's at night. But but that's the way Woody would treat you. He, he would do the same to me in Supergast Car. Just slam the door. You're holding five. I'm like, well, that ain't what you told me 10 minutes ago. Yeah. And on top of that, Sherm, I did did a great job. I hit the tree. I rolled Bob through just a few thou was just wearing him out on the throttle down there. And, you know, I thought I have just done a wonderful job of driving this race car. Woody's going to be so proud of me. He ain't going to cuss me or anything. And I get back and he wore my butt out about patting that gas with that quadrajet telling me something about <laughs> some kind of flat was going to close or something. <laughs> He said, that flat's going to lock down, and you go, it's going to stop. <laughs> he, he just told me how stupid I was and everything else. I thought, man, I thought I did a really good job. That's when Sherman just pull you to the side and go, hey, man, don't worry about him. He, he just gets a little fired up. Sometimes. <laughs> he said, you're going to be all right. Come over and eat some of his boudin. Um, <laughs> That's right. Sherman. That, that cool boudin, it wasn't hot. My first Super Pro win was in 1989. Obviously, had been racing about five years. Didn't race a lot of Super Pro. I was a foot brake guy. Well, they didn't call it foot brake then. They called it street. But, you know, I was uh, I was rocking along there and, and having some success in the street class. And, you know, my dad let me take his 68 Cutlass. And for the podcast listeners, real quick, this is the same 68 Cutlass that shut down the Super Chevy in 1991 at atlanta dragway because we burned out under the tower and then smoked the track up with uh, transmission fluid after the first pass of the event so same car but 1989 i'm hauling it and as you can imagine you know it's a modest truck and an open trailer that we built here at the house and trailer was built in the early 70s so it was already old by 89 and it had little stops up in the front where you'd pull the car up against it. And you just put your one chain and binder and pull it, hunker down, you know, you know, just pull it tight as you could. And you didn't put nothing on the back because it's 1989. I was going about three and a half miles to the drag strip. So car didn't have park. Okay. So that was, that was a little bit of a problem. Issue number one. It's only a problem if you don't have a chain and binder on it, which I had. I mean, if she was locked down, I was ready. You had one. I had one, which is, you know, How all I had ever needed. That's all I had ever needed up until this incident. <laughs> so I'm going to the track, and I'm about a mile from the track. Road's a little rough. I hit me a pretty good bump. And when I hit that bump, I heard a little bit more racket than I wanted to hear. And I looked in the rearview mirror, and my old Cutlass was exiting the trailer and we was not at the track and there was nobody in it so obviously this is not really what i'm looking to happen and uh car come off the trailer actually it it halfway stopped and so i'd locked the brakes down on the truck and when i did it just rocked it one time and y'all y'all all heard them when they're trying to get parked but they can't get it sound like a, a wood peg and a bicycle spoke so it's gone car car takes off i'm a nervous wreck my dad's let me you know here i am i'm actually 17 years old hadn't turned 18 yet dad's let me haul the truck and trailer and his pride and joy 68 cutlass to the racetrack and i've lost it now bobby joe pennington tell you son i've hauled this thing three million miles I ain't never lost it and i don't know how this happens but it happens so it rolled off the trailer and rolled about a probably about an eighth of a mile or so into the woods and got up on a tree that was about four inches around 
pretty stout little tree and just run the back tires up off the ground. And, you know, it was kind of dug into it with the back bumper. By the way, did not even scratch the cutlass, okay? Hey, it the cutlass is indestructible. He rolled eight and tore some trees down, but it up a tree. And it's up a tree. I mean, it's climbed it. And I can't get it down by myself because the back tires ain't touching the ground. So I take the truck and trailer, ride it up to the track. You know, immediately I'm pulling in the gate and they're all looking at me like I'm the biggest idiot to ever walk the face there because I ain't got a race car on the trailer. Tell them the story. Lost it. It's gone. It's down there against the tree. I can't get it off. I don't know what to do. Don't want to call my dad because he let me take it to the track. They're like, we'll just get a four-wheeler. We'll go down there and get you. So they did. They rode me down with a four-wheeler, pulled it down off of that tree. So I'm having one of the worst days I've ever had in racing because I've done lost my dad's car and run it up a tree and I ain't even got to the track yet. So they get me in the racetrack. I drive it in, drive it about a mile, drive it in the gate. Everybody's laughing at me, picking at me, having a good time. I really can't say nothing because I did lose the race car. So that night, things are starting to go pretty well. And I um, rocking along there, turn on wind light or two. And lo and behold, I make it to the final. And this is my first Super Pro final. You know, so I'm pretty excited. And I'm racing a legend. I don't, Chairman, I don't know if you remember the great Pete Skyro. Yes, sir. He was an absolute legend in these parts and had the finest equipment and was very confident and didn't have any problem whatsoever of telling you how bad he was fixing to beat you. That's the same Pete Skyro I remember. That's the one you remember. I'm 17 <laughs> years old. And uh, I, Pete hadn't really talked to me this whole time, and we get down there in the final, and it's an 89. This is about where they really started talking about cutting purses and stuff. I, I'd raced for years, and that talk never happened, but it started happening right in there. So, you know, I'm going to be a big boy and go up to this legend, and I ask him, Pete, you know, it's a it's thousand of wins, 400 runner-up. Um, you know, we can do, I'm telling him what we can do. You know, we can do seven, seven, we can do eight and six. And he said, <laughs> you really think that I'm going to split with you? So you really feel like you can win? And I'm, oh, I'm, I peed a little, you know, I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, <laughs> I really thought I could till you just told me I couldn't. So <laughs> now I'm a real nervous wreck and Pete's car is always fast. And I was going like eight oh nine or something and my wind light comes on. And I, I was, I mean, obviously y'all know your first big one like that. You just, you, you can't imagine the feeling and you'll never get it again. Pete comes over and shakes my hand, tells me congratulations and no hard feelings on that. He was just talking a little fun, you know, so I'm now feeling good about mine and Pete's relationship. So I go home, I make it back home without losing a race car and I wake my dad up. It's about one thirty in the morning and... I flashing all the money, you know, told him what all I won. He's really excited for me. And then I had to tell him I lost his race car and that didn't, that didn't go as well, but <laughs> I figured I'd show him the money first and he ultimately calmed down and was pretty excited about it all. But, uh, it was every emotion a man or a young boy could possibly have. And just an amazing, amazing day at the track and so different from now. It's an old school story because you know, now you got 11 tie downs on your car or you got it in an enclosed trailer. So if it did come loose, it ain't, it's just going to roll around the trailer a little bit and you in a motor home. So you wouldn't even know it till you got there. You wouldn't feel it. And 
here I was in a single cab truck with a trailer that was about 16 feet long end to end and lost my daddy's race car off of it. So uh, <laughs> that's something I don't think ever happened to me again. It was sure. a short story. That's exactly what I was afraid of. How are we going to follow that? <laughs> a lot of crazy things have happened to me. Jeremy, I'm sure you have seen your share as well, though. Yeah, oh, I'm, I've, it's, been, it's been tough around my pits for 30 years something now. But <laughs> Take us back. I'm intrigued. I don't know if you've got anything queued up per se for us. Term, but I love hearing some of the stories from the original super gas days because you were one of the pioneers of that class. And if anything, I don't know if, if any form of racing has changed more over the course of the last 30 years than the 90 categories and super gas in general. So you got any anything good you could queue up to take us back to that day and age? It's changed so much. Everything has, has just evolved to a different level. But I mean, back then I had I've won the championship in 90 and I was a big mile an hour car. My car was the big mile an hour car for the, the group, but it was a big mile an hour car mainly because I couldn't afford to have a 196 low or a 208. I had a 176. <laughs> That's all I could afford, but I could run 990 at 138 to 140. When I went to California and run it, I ran 140 mile an hour. I thought that was like mine shaft. But, you know, you're out there on the coast and the weather's good. But long story, it's just evolved. And back then, the, quote, atypical super gas car, the best thing in the pits, they all had 198 gear sets, and they would run wide open in low gear and then shut them off at the gear change and run 990 at 119 to 125. Mm. And well, so it evolved. Flying. Oh, I was flying. But, I, I mean – but none of us knew how to drive a strike, you know what I mean, to, to speak of. And poor old Luke here has taught everybody in the world how to drive. Now, here we go. <laughs> here we go. But, but back then, you know, you, you had some guys that were froggy. We all, and we learned how to drive, especially when you have Woody in your pits. He's going to, he trained you to drive. And at the same time, y'all got trained. But I went to Scotty at Evans School every weekend. Between the two cars I drove, <laughs> I just didn't have to pay. I just didn't have to pay to go to them. They just showed. They just give uh, me a class every week. Oh, but, you paid more than most, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I did. <laughs> but that's how the class has evolved. It's just it's gone for, and we didn't have any. Like I had a uh, dial flow carburetor and weight and gear change. You know, you just move the shift points up and down, and then the other guys, you know, they were shutting it off at the stop, and then you would just keep closing it down. And then it evolved itself up to where you got it. We started getting more power, and then everybody figured out we need to go more mile an hour. Then the timers came. Well, the stutter era, which most people don't even know about the stutter era. And mm -hmm. the stutter era in bracket racing or superclass racing was the baddest thing on the planet. It's just amazing. It was. But, but they outlawed that, but they still let us use a stop. So really changed a bunch except that we ended up having to try to get the the problem with it was is that we had everybody started getting more power and bigger motors that's when the, the growth of the motor started going back when i first started in the early mid 90s if you had a the texas guys had the big motors they had 509s and the, most everybody else had 468s but those were big motors for our classes 
Now a five oh nine is a small box in Super Dad. <laughs> yeah. But it's evolved to the point where everybody got then the problem was was that we were spinning the tires coming off the stop because everybody's coming off in low gear. And then you had to that evolution showed up with NHRA at the time wouldn't allow you to shift on time. That was illegal. So you had to we finally oh, figured wow. out how to do that. But it's hard. It was it was hard because we we had to figure it out. But you could do it with that legally by their rules. But Dead Bear had an RPM activated switch, but it had a shift timer. It had a safety feature in it that wouldn't allow. So what would happen if you had a converter that would go to 6,000 and you was going to shift it? If you had a converter that went to, say, 6,500 and you wanted to shift it at 62, it wouldn't, and it had a safety device that wouldn't allow it to, to shift. For a half a second, you could get it with a half a second or a one second delay in it. That's mm. how the, sh- the shift timer evolved, mm-hmm. where everybody started this. shifting on time. So you could put it in, so you could leave and put it in high gear, and you were legal. But that, you know, it's just the evolution of the sport. And then it's just climbed and climbed carburetors and tires and transmissions and engine. Everything's so much more efficient. Yeah. And that's where we've grown to. I mean, I've raced from going and I had good speed at 140 to now 170. That's right. a 30 to 40 mile an hour increase. When you and think it, back it, to those those early days, Sherm, like who was because I think of some of the, the characters in Supergas at that time specifically. And like who was the most eclectic guy to hang out with? Like who always had if you if you went out after the races with this guy, like you, you had a story to tell. Like who who was that guy? Well, there, there, there was there was always several, but you always had <laughs> Ferd. Ferd always was Ferd. He 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 stands out amongst everybody. He's Ferd. He's not gonna he's not gonna sugarcoat nothing he tells you. And but and he always produced. You know what I mean? He could back it up. Mm-hmm. But that's Ferd. He did more research and did more everything and you had cohen you know and cohen and he could back it up too cohen could always do it but there was so many guys that i mean i I can remember back in the days and we had a couple of clutch guys that were very good mazza you know he won a championship with a clutch you had the rollo brothers out of texas and they would switch one would drive one year and one would drive the other and they would still be were very competitive and then you had Castales, you know, he was so, he was so analytical about everything he did. You know what I mean? He, he put so many, especially the Texas guys on the map, Terry Sullivan, he always was just had, he always had everything down to the nth degree of everything. And then, but the, the, I think the master of them all was Gecker. There's always a Gecker story around that year i went to pomona in 90 me and woody we were like lost cowboys out there in a dually and and we show up and, and gecker goes out there and that, i don't, I don't like know a documentary two, couldn't it lost cowboys in a dually that, that's pretty good yeah i mean we, we just don't know we, we, and gecker's out there and he's about the only guy we personally know from racing on the east coast and gecker's out there and he goes out there and he makes him a he makes him a hit and he's like 10 and 90 with an eight and he goes back out for a second lap and he goes like five and 89 with a nine and then he goes out for his third lap and he's like 
seven and now he was two. And then so we're done and we're getting ready for first round the next day. We're cruising through the pits. He's about the only one we know. And we ride by Gecker's and he's got her up on jack stands and he's got the tranny out. And we're like, Shelly, what's the deal here? You break something? Oh, no, oh, no. I can't figure it. He says, I think I'm going to change flywheel. I can put a little weight in it and I'm going I can, I'm gonna put a converter, make it a little more aggressive. I'm like, Shelly, did you know we're running first round? The next run we go down to your first round. He's, he's, yeah, but I still think I might change the stop too. <laughs> and, but that he was so analytical about the way he did things. There's a lot of people didn't realize Shelly was one of the first ones that had override down there with that cheater stick he had. I mean, he was so he was such a good racer that a lot of people didn't realize how good a racer he was. The, and, and another thing for me is that he was the first two super gas finals I raced in. I raced Gecker. He beat me in uh, Warner Robins and I run it up. And then I run him in Suffolk, Virginia. And we run the racetrack. It was an old airport and the racetrack was so rough that we raced and I don't let's do this was the DD back then and we run down through there, and both of us were double O, and we run run down through there, and that was back before we was really froggy driving the stripe. And uh, anyways, and you didn't need to drive the stripe then because the racetrack was so rough, you had to just hold on. But anyways, <laughs> his wind light comes on, but I get no time. And so Lex comes back, and we come back up through there. He says, well, we got to rerun. So anyways, we rerun. And he said, he says, because I ain't get, I ain't get no time in one lane. And I, I, and both of you were within a few thousand up front. And so I can't say yes or no. So we rerun. And anyways, I rerun him and I won my wind light come on and it blew the deck lead off. Cause you, every time you had to go back and redo all the Zeus fashions on the car, that's how rough the track was. <laughs> but we, I blew the deck lead off the car, go back. I didn't even know it come off. I just, I was so excited. And, uh, Got back up there and, and and it was over. But Gecker, he he is such a pillar of super gas that people don't realize how much he did for the class and getting it started. But he's a champion of our super gas deal. So yeah, Sherman, go ahead, Jed. I, I wanted to say, you know, you talked about a lot about the early days of super gas, but you mentioned off air when we called you that uh, like 1985 was your start. What was that first trip down the drag strip in? What what was you driving? I've always, I've been driving. My first trip was in a Toyota when I was 13, but, and when I started running, I quit, I got out of high school and played a couple of years of junior college baseball that we, my dad had, he had, he was ready, we was ready to go racing. But anyways, I went and played a couple of years, but he had an old, it was an old super stalker, 69 Nova that we converted, put a big block in it. And I ran 1090. The first NHR divisional that I ran in was in Blaney, South Carolina, in a 69 Nova, foot breaking it, and it all it would run was 1090. It didn't have I didn't have no cross I didn't have anything. <laughs> and I can remember I ran uh, Craig Miller. He beat me fourth round, and I lost the lane flip. And the lane flip was the deal because, and get my age out here, oh Johnny Dowie. Johnny Dowie, which he was a pro stock racer back in the day. He owned that racetrack. He had a jet truck up there that weekend. But back then, the, the racetracks weren't concrete. They were all asphalt. I mean, from the water box to the finish line was all asphalt. And he brought that dang jet truck up there. 
Saturday night for or Friday night because it was Blaney is always a Friday Saturday race. They had a Sunday blue law you couldn't race on Sunday. But anyways, Friday night he brings that jet truck up there and and he goes up there and he staged up and thrust and blows and he burned the asphalt up. It was on fire. So it was a one lane racetrack. <laughs> All you could do is you won the flip. And you got it when the cars would leave the start line, dust was flying up from under his tires. He just he just fried the asphalt. I think Dowie ended up having to resurface it before the next race. But <laughs> <laughs> the things that we uh, we kind of take for granted these days. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine the social media outburst over a, a something oh, similar to that today? Oh, can you imagine? I mean, you know, and we take for granted. We race on nice facilities with concrete and concrete not six not to 60 foot to 300 feet to eight mile to quarter mile you know crazy good stuff man (laughs) so luke you got a story or two that i think would be interesting as well yeah i don't know how well this matches up and I'll, I'll try to condense it a little bit. The, what I had queued up and there's so many to choose from when you actually start thinking back to all of the fun and crazy and entertaining things that have happened over the course of what now, 25 plus years or two in this at mm-hmm. various levels. But I, I'll kind of go back. I, th- I guess this mirrors your story to some extent, although I didn't lose my car on the way to the racetrack. <laughs> I'll go back to the first time that I actually got to compete at Texas Raceway. Now, this is similar to your story. I'm 14 years old. I had raced junior dragsters for a couple of years, but I took a, a couple of years off. I kind of got burnt out on juniors. I worked at the racetrack, saved up my money, bought a real car at 14. A, a real quote unquote race car. It was it's pretty rough. I, I I may get some pictures up on the on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page. She <laughs> was a peach, okay? But it was mine and I was proud of it. Well, I bought that at fourteen. Obviously I can't race at fourteen, not at Texas Raceway, because they played by the rules for the most part. Like it was an HRA sanctioned track. I grew up there, so not only were you supposed to have a driver's license to race there? Everybody knew who I was and how old I was because my dad raced there and knew that I was not yet old enough to race. But with that said, there was a little outlaw track about an hour and a half from us. And uh, shortly after I turned 14, my dad kind of came to an agreement with me and he would take me down there, say, once a month and I'd get to race. That's where I kind of cut my teeth. And so three nights a, a, a month or three weekends a month, he would race at home at Kennedale, which we lived three miles or so from Texas Raceway. And then one weekend a month, he would take me to Cedar Creek, which is where I would I kind of learn to race and all that. So this went on for, I don't know, five, six months that year. This would be 1993, four. No, no, three as in juniors, 95, 96, somewhere in that range. <clears throat> so. Fast forward, it's the last weekend of the year, like late October. It's the last weekend that any track in our area is open. And our deal, we're supposed to go to Cedar Creek that day. So I'm fired up for three weeks in advance, right? My last race year, we're going to Cedar Creek, going to race. It's going to be awesome. And uh, as it plays out, my dad had to work Saturday, supposed to get off around noon. Well, he calls me, says, hey, I got bad news. I can't get out of here. Can't take you to Cedar Creek tonight. I'm devastated. You know, it's the last chance of the year. The world has come to an end. So what we would do, because when he would race at Kennedale, I would work the gas pumps. And if he had to work late, my mom would just drive me out to the racetrack and drop me off. I'd work the fuel station. So 
And in doing so, whenever my dad couldn't race, I'd have one of my buddies take me back to the house. We would load up my Nova, my pristine jewel, bring it back to the racetrack so that one of my buddies could race it while I was working. Okay. So this was not uncommon. Mm-hmm. So I go to my mom. I'm like, hey, dad can't get off work. Just take me to Kennedale. Right. So she drops me off at the racetrack. I get my buddy, Daryl No. Shout out to Daryl No. Daryl, I hop in the truck with him. We go back to my house, get get the Nova, load it up, and go back there. He says, uh, who's going to drive today? I said, I am. He said, man, you, you can't do that. You ain't old enough to race. I said, I'm going to race. I was supposed to race today. I'm going to race. Right? My, my mom ain't there. My dad ain't there. I, I can do that. Ain't nobody going to stop me. I can go race. So my plan is, now keep in mind, everybody at this facility not only knows me, but knows that I'm 14 years old. Yeah, yeah, you I, there. I, this hasn't really dawned on my, you know, I mean, like I ain't, I'm 14 years old, right? I'm, I'm thinking about the right now. So my plan for all of this, I pull up for the last time trial by the time we get there and get unloaded and like six cars back in the lanes, I got my helmet on. Nobody know it's me, right? Nobody notice. Well, sure enough, I get to make the run. Nobody says anything. Cool. Roll around. I run. Uh, we had a super pro class, like a fast electronics class. We had a pro class, which was a slower delay box class, and we had a foot brake class. So I entered pro and foot brake. <clears throat> I think my car went eight fifties or something to the eighth at the time. Whatever. So I roll around. I win the first round in both classes. Cool. I win second round in both classes. So not only have nobody given me a hard time about racing, I'm winning. About that time, I get a call to the tower. Ooh, this probably isn't right. So I come strutting up the steps of the tower and poor old Larry Croft. I have talked about him on the podcast before. Larry, I'm sorry. I mean, I probably took years off your life, but I walk up there and he's just staring at me upset. And I'm like, hey, what's up, boy? What do you what do you think you're doing? I said, uh, I mean, like, what's the obvious answer there? Racing. I'm racing. Right. Boy, you ain't old enough to race. I said, I, I, I realize that, but I ain't, I ain't causing no trouble, you know? And, uh, and I'm really just kind of hunkered down in the corner, just waiting for the worst. You know what I mean? Like, I, I assume I'm going to get disqualified. I hope I don't get a whipping, you know, like, don't call daddy. <laughs> this is, this is going to be rough. And Larry, now that I have the perspective to think about it from, from where he was coming from, I put him in a really bad spot, but he tells me, he says, son, you're 14 years old. I said, yes, sir. He said, but you have done whooped four of my racers. <laughs> so what am I supposed to do? I can't take you out and put them back in. And I looked at me. I hadn't even thought about it from that perspective, you know. And I said, I, man, I, I'm sorry, Mr. Croft. I, I just, just wanted to race. And he sits down in his chair and he's quiet for a second. He looks me dead in the eye and says, boy. If you screw up, if you hit anything, you will never race here again. Now, get down there and don't mess up. I looked at him like, I get to race? And he just kind of nodded his head. So I'm back, I'm back in, right? We're, we're back in the game. <laughs> so it's literally, I think, that round. I go to start my Nova at the head of staging, and I hear this odd sound, something zing, as it starts and is running. And I look, Daryl, my buddy Daryl, no, <clears throat> still standing beside the car. I look at him. I go, what was that? And he goes... That was the starter. Whatever you do, don't shut it off. Don't cut it off. Right. I said, okay. And like literally, 
the starter Bendix shot off the car and was laying in the weeds next to the staging lanes, right? Look, <laughs> he didn't kill somebody. So the good news at this point is that I'm basically in a glorified street car. So it's really not that big a deal to leave it running for as long as we need to leave it running. Well, I keep winning. And so we are steadily, I mean, for like two hours, pouring water in one end of this thing and fuel in the other. And we ain't shutting it off for nothing. <laughs> and I get down, you know, at the time, Kennedale got a bunch of cars. So I get down, it's fourth, fifth round. I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I lost with seven cars left in no electronics and foot brake. And I got down to three in pro and along the way i beat old man richardson which is still like my claim to fame scotty and Edmund's dad you know like i'm 14 years old my first day racing i am on top of the world well finally i get beat in both classes and i'm still i'm on a high you know what i mean i, I got whatever i won 90 dollars or whatever the case may be i'm yeah. locked up and uh, so i park that thing back behind the behind the fuel shed there where i'd where we would normally leave it whenever my dad couldn't come to the racetrack and I hop in with some buddies and we'll go to IHOP because we all go to IHOP after the races and have a big time and they drop me off at home and I don't remember when it was, it was late you know my dad's sitting up in his recliner when I get home and kind of like your story Jed like you want to you what do they call that like a, a negative sandwich like you you <laughs> You, you start off with something real optimistic, something real good. Then you just kind of slide in the negative and then you follow it up real quick with something good. Well, I, I ain't even really thinking along those lines. And I, I walk in and, you know, this is before cell phones and all that. So ain't no way my dad knows what's just happened. And I'm thinking again in my 14-year-old mind that it's the last race of the year. Like, ain't nobody going to see my dad for like three, four months. They'll forget about this. Like, I'm just going to keep this on the hush, right? Yes. So my dad says, uh, how's race? And I said, man, it was great. Daryl done good. I said, he got down to three cars and, and foot brake or three cars in pro and seven cars in foot brake. And we got $90 and it was awesome. And we had fun starters broke. So when we go back to get the car tomorrow, we're going to have to, we had two open trailers. We had a, a single axle, which could probably similar to what you was working with. Jed. <laughs> yeah. And then we had a, the, the big trailer, quote unquote, big trailer, which was just a, a tandem axle open trailer with a winch. <laughs> Like we're gonna have to take it two actors. We, we're gonna have to pinch it up on it, you know. <laughs> so I uh, and he's all that's cool, no problem, you know. I'm glad you had fun. So whatever, go to bed. Cool. Get up the next morning, hop in, go to the racetrack. Ain't nobody there. Pull up to Old Nova, and here comes Hutch, the track owner, walking down from his house up on top of the hill. Now Hutch, bless his heart, like. I ain't going to say he wasn't all there, but like he talked to you with his eyes closed. Like he didn't make sense half the time. He and my dad were buddies, but I'm thinking he would probably slept through last night. Like he ain't got no clue what I'm, I'm good here. You know, he comes walking down and he walks up to my dad and he says, Bo, that's what he always called my dad, Bo. Bo, your boy did good last night. My ears kind of perk up. And my dad said, yeah, he said, Daryl done real good. That's co- Daryl, hell, that boy was driving the wheels off that car, man. <laughs> and I just kind of, oh, no. So, But I think the way it all shook down, my dad was tickled at how it all went down and proud that I'd done pretty good. That I don't think I got in a whole heap of trouble for it. Like, he wasn't super proud of me, <laughs> but he was proud of the way it turned out. So it, so it all ended up okay. <laughs> that was a, a huge difference from me and you Luke. So when i was 14 i didn't make my daddy proud on the racetrack at all <laughs> luckily there were no buybacks in 1985 so um you know i got to take my beating first round and go home i didn't beat four people all year much less in one night 
<laughs> By the way, as a follow-up, like six months later, I, the day I turned 15, I got a hardship license and could actually race at Kennedale, like, on a regular basis. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> How old were you when you started in 85, Sherm? Oh, shoot. That was, uh, I was 20-something then. But when I started, I was like 12 or 13 at Phoenix City Dragway. Which oh, yeah. Phoenix City Dragway, which people don't realize Phoenix City Dragway held the very first NHRA divisional ever. Buster Couch was the D2 director back then, which that was, I was a very youngster back then when he started, but him and Bobby Boyd were partners on that place or uh, Jerry Coley and Bobby Boyd were partners on the place, but Buster was the DD at the time, but that the very first race was there, but Phoenix city was a, was a, a neat old place. It was a pecan orchard for the pits. And then the drag strip run down through and it didn't have any guardrails. They had banks on each side. Yep. But uh it was a unique place. They uh they used to have the pro stockers had a Wednesday night race before the Gators every year back in the seventies. At Phoenix and City. It, at Phoenix City. They would they <laughs> would uh I mean Bill Jenkins and Nicholson and Bill the Step Kid and I mean I was just a crumb snatcher at the time and they would they would show up on Wednesday night and they'd have a big big pro stock race and what basically what it was it was testing tune for the gators because a lot of those guys didn't you know didn't run the west coast and uh but we would see those guys over there at phoenix city and but phoenix city was where i i grew up and started and uh but me and rampy and tatum and david simmons and don young mm. it was a frequent flyer place jed's Jed's group, the Penningtons, used to come down and frequent. Oh yeah, and uh, remember the Phoenix Ten Thousand? It was a that was a that was a big end of the year race, and they had the modified cars and alcohol. They always had a series of alcohol cars, the old leakers that come over there. It was a neat old place. It was strange to its to way. What it was a beautiful place, but like I said, the pit area was in a pecan orchard. Yeah, but we didn't know any better. I, you know, I remember going there in the 70s with uh, my dad and my uncle. They were racing stockers. Sherman, I was I was the kid dragging the wagon with water buckets. You know, I mean, everybody had That's one. Everybody go over to the water. You know, my dad had, uh, he was very innovative. I mean, this man was way ahead of his time. He welded T-handles on all of the, the hose clamps. So you could get those uh, hoses off of there real fast. What no electric water pumps, so you know you I remember going over there and and they would be everybody it seemed like seemed like everybody had a two eighty three stick shift combination, and it would have could be in a Chevelle, a Chevy two, a wagon, or an Impal. Yep. But everybody had a. I can remember my dad. He was he had used to have Chevelles. He was a superstar racer. He had Chevelles, and we would go over there. There would be fifteen or twenty. 65 Chevelles with 283 stick shift combinations in them. Yep. And racing for class. <laughs> and 80 pound flywheels. And, oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I yeah. can remember my dad built to one of the ones I can definitely remember. He had so Jimmy Bridges bought that the Chevelle, the 65 Chevelle that Jimmy Bridges raced forever. He bought it from my dad. It was a two door 65 Chevelle. But after that, a four door car got a weight break. So I can remember my dad bringing it. He sold that car and he said, I'm going to build me another one. So, but a four door car had a weight break and he bought a, he bought a mail car. It was a guy delivered us mail, a 65 
four-door hardtop, and he brought it in the shop, and I can remember him talking about it forever. He brought it in the shop, and within two weeks, it was as full and a competitive superstar as it was. And he said, I had a total of $3,000 in it. That's building the motor, buying wheels, tires, axles, transmission, flywheel, and the whole deal. You know what I mean? A whole car for $3,000. And he was competitive as anybody in the in the country. And, you know, now you can't get a good tranny for $3,000. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Sherman, did you ever have a car with a name on it? No, not well. My dad did. I, me yeah. personally, did. Other than my, my dad used to have. He had an old Biscayne with a four twenty five, four twenty seven, and he, he had Bisquick on the side a bit. But he, he ran it forever. <laughs> he evolved out of that. To, uh, but me personally, no. I've been fortunate enough to have some help, and and I don't know how all that evolved, and all these years as being a sportsman racer with with major sponsorship and me and very few have done it. And, and I've just been fortunate to be in that position. Yeah. What about you, Jed? You have a car with a name on it? I didn't have a name on anything I had, but my dad in one of my favorite cars of all the years of me growing up, uh, they had a, he had a 66, uh, Bel Air four door. It might've been a best cane, but it was called the yard dog. And, uh, I still, to this day, have his racing shirt uh, that he had uh, with the yard dog on it. And I'll actually, I'll post that on the site, too, for the for the listeners to see what the yard dog was all about. But, I mean, how much better name could a race car have than the yard dog? Bisquick's pretty That's good. Right. <laughs> well, and i tell you another unique thing, and, and, and it's it's amazing how you see the, the future fold. But my dad, this car was so obsolete and the reason they got rid of it it was they changed the rules and it, it was kind of like a dead animal 425 427 with a four speed and seven inch tires and you're going 1150s <laughs> so it wasn't good for nothing so he, he said he says how am i going to get rid of this thing so he he raffled it off now is that like the standardized deal today is to raffle something off but he raffled the car off and I can remember at Phoenix, he raffled off at the Phoenix 10,000 at Phoenix City, and uh, two guys split a five dollar ticket. Back then, five dollar ticket to win you a whole car. Five dollar <laughs> ticket. Wow. Two guys split it. They win the car and they burn the clutch out of it, driving it down the track. <laughs> <laughs> but that's you know, and and now that's standard thing to just getting a raffle, win something, you know, racing wise every day. And that was like 73, maybe it's it's amazing how things have changed. Sure. And we said this when we had David Rampey on a couple of weeks ago, how we just felt awful to cut our time short because I feel the same way with you. Like I think we, the three of us could sit here and tell this, these stories for three or four more hours, but we're gonna we're gonna cut this, but we we promise we will get you back on the podcast at some time, Sherman. This has been fun, my friend. Well, anytime, fellas, and I appreciate y'all having me. Anything I can do for y'all, y'all are welcome, and uh, y'all do a great job. Appreciate y'all. Thank you, Sherman. We appreciate it, but always enjoy it. Look forward to seeing you somewhere this year. Uh, we're gonna see each other. Y'all be good <laughs> and have a great year. Thanks, Sherman. You same. Thank you.
I want to thank everybody for tuning in. To make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available, subscribe. And, and, and you can do that on Google Play. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that wherever you are accessing uh, our show today. Just subscribe. That way that you know that you have got the latest uh, edition of the podcast. You'll be the first to know. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about the podcast. Get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast over the PA on race day. Memorial Day weekend, Memphis International Raceway will play host to the Great America. $20,000 bracket race and the inaugural Dream Team Challenge. This event will have something for everyone, boasting payouts of $10,000 to win Friday, $20,000 to win Sunday, $10,000 to win Monday on the box side, while the footbrake contingent will race for $5,000 on Friday, $10,000 Sunday, $5,000 on Monday for a weekend entry of just 200 bucks. Saturday, I didn't say anything about Saturday. Saturday will feature the first ever Dream Team Challenge. This race will consist of 32 teams of box racers, 32 teams of no box racers, and 16 junior dragster teams. They will battle it out to find out who has assembled the ultimate Dream Team. They are still taking alternates if you'd like to get on the list. The Dream Team rosters are full. But even if you are not competing in the Dream Team race, there is plenty to be excited for with Big Money Friday, Sunday, and Monday. Check out the Great American Bracket Race Facebook page for complete details. In addition to that, Johnny Ezell and Cody Pollage are bringing the 5th Annual Southern Big Buck Nationals back to No Problem Raceway in Belrose, Louisiana. It'll be a fantastic event taking place February the 8th through the 11th, so it's right around the corner. Friday and Sunday will be $10,000 to win, presented by Dairy Queen. Mm. While Saturday will pay an outstanding $15,000 to win, presented by East Tex Racecraft. Best Losing Package Awards will be given away for the first five rounds each day. The event will also feature two shootouts. They'll have the box 64-car shootout, presented by the Shop at Deck Bar, and that'll pay $15,000 while the no-box 32-car shootout will be presented by May Race Carbs, and it will pay $2,500. Both shootouts are currently full, but will be taken alternates. There will be a racer appreciation dinner both Friday and Saturday night. The box weekend entry is only $450, while the no-box weekend entry is a minimal charge of $200. Double entries are allowed in any form. Thursday will be open or test and tune from 1 to 6, and there will be a practice tree race that evening. For more information, find the Southern Big Buck Nationals on Facebook. Honey, where are we racing next week? It's time to discuss next week's major events, news, updates, releases, and announcements. It's What's on Tap! Guys, Jeffers Motorsports Park in Sykeston, Missouri is the first sanctioned AHRA track under the AHRA Resurrection and will be running the AHRA Sportsman Program this coming 2018 season. That includes performance-based payout and a newly devised perfect run recognition. Keep up with them at www.ahraonline.com or look for them on Facebook. 
That's good stuff, Jed. I, that's actually news yeah. to me. Uh, I, this, is how, this shows how dependent we're getting on Mark. That's not far from me. That's one of my, obviously, I-57 is my home track, but uh, Sykeston is only about 90 miles down the road. We get down there a couple of times a year, so I look forward to uh, supporting that and supporting the AHRA at the couple of times that we get to race around home. Good on Dallas at AHRA, and good on the guys at Sykeston. I really appreciate what they're trying to do, and I'm glad that it's uh, in my neck of the woods so I can be a small part of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a cool racetrack there, Luke, in uh, eastern Missouri, and it borders Kentucky, Illinois. There's a lot of opportunity for Arkansas. There's a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of racers that have opportunity to go there, and I think that's where Mr. Dirt calls home as well. So, great racetrack, and uh, proud to see the folks at AHRA getting them signed up uh, to be a sanctioned race facility. Yeah, you'll also see your boy Double uh, O David Bell make an appearance at Sykeston on the regular. So. Yes, yes, and he uh, he cracks them there just like he does everywhere. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Some news and notes for the week in the What's on Tap segment. Big news or, or big deadlines, I guess, coming up from Pete and Kyle at the Spring Fling pre-entry for the Spring Fling uh, at Galat. They're taking 350 top bulb spots this year. The event is May 1st through 5th. Pre-entry opens February 1st. That'll be about a week from the time that you guys hear this podcast. On that day, it opens for previous flingers only. That's people that have attended a previous spring fling event. On February 2nd, a day later, assuming that there are still spots available, it opens for everyone else. In addition to the 350 top bulb spots available at Glot. 32 bottom bulb spots are also open. Again, that starts on February 1st. The bottom bulb portion will be a first for an East Coast fling. That's something that they've done at Vegas for a couple of years. It'll be the first time that the bottom bulb is intertwined in the spring flings on the East Coast. Yeah, Luke, uh, the exclusive uh, JEGS 32 no-box racers, they'll compete separately with their own buy run in their class until one racer is remaining. And in addition to the overall spring playing event purses and prizes, these 32 no-box guys and gals will uh, also be competing for the JEGS no-box bonus, where the last remaining no-box driver will be awarded a $500 cash bonus on Thursday and Saturday with that uh, prize ramping up to $1,000 in Friday's program. I don't know if this move to limit entries from the Spring Fling staff has been particularly well-received or not. Like, honestly, I'm a little bit out of the loop, but I, for one, am a big fan of this kid. I I know we've talked about this. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. I'm I'm not a huge fan of the mega races. I go to them, but when you get five, 600 cars in one place, like, it's just a marathon. Like, I would assume stay away from the 18-hour days. I commend Pete and Kyle for making this change in format to keep a, a manageable event in place that's still fun for a lot of people yeah like several of their races over the last few years have landed in this range and they've kind of mastered this car count they've mastered whatever car count they get but they've mastered this one peter and kyle do a ton of research they know how long it takes to run each category basically breaking it down to how many seconds per run these cars are running and they are very comfortable with this size field and being able to give the racers the best experience possible, their motto, race it, experience it, that's something they take to heart. And uh, these guys are going to make sure they put on a wonderful show for these 350 top bulbers and 32 bottom bulbers. 
Yeah, in addition to the uh, Galat fling, they also had some news come out on the Vegas fling that uh, I think is noteworthy in our who's in our um, what's on tap segment. Obviously, I'm uh, a little bit partial to the Spring Fling Million. I- I'll go ahead and say it's my favorite race of the year. It's the best damn race of the year, Big Jet. If you pre-enter and you are not required to race this event, like it's you're not required to uh, to pre-enter for this event, but if you do pre-enter Vegas for the three thirty thousand dollars to win races. That's $675 entry. If you pre-enter by the end of January, it's January 31st, you go into a drawing where they will pull two names that will both win Friday million entries. That's a $2,000 value. All you've got to do is pre-enter the weekend, and two of those pre-entrants will get drawn out and get a free roll at one of, if not the biggest paying events of the year. Yeah, it's going to be an awesome event. I hope... uh... Everybody gets pre-entered and see somebody win some of those entries and get yourself in on the cheap. Uh, Luke, tell us a little bit about the This Is Bracket Racing's Off-Season Practice Tree Challenge. That's coming up very quick. Yeah, I think we mentioned this uh, in one of the previous episodes, but I wanted to let everybody know that isn't aware the This Is Bracket Racing Off-Season Practice Tree Challenge will start Monday. What that is is a Facebook group that is open to everyone. It is free. We have over 3,500 members in the group. And each year wow. in the past, it's always just been me kind of detailing my practice habits, providing a daily challenge that is basically a, a practice exercise that I do regularly within This Is Bracket Racing Elite and encouraging the members of the group to participate, to do the same challenge, to post their results. We'll do a top bulb portion of the challenge for two weeks. We'll do a bottom bulb portion of the challenge the following two weeks. Again, we'll kick off the top on monday the 29th and this year it's going to be a little bit more interesting it's going to be a lot more fun it's not just going to be me talking into the screen kb is joining me for the top ball portion and on the bottom we've got a number of well-known very respected um, racers from across the country that are going to kind of present their own practice habits i don't know if i can mention names or not i don't see why i can't right it's my (laughs) kind of my program in addition to me and kb on the bottom bulb we're going to have a day presented by bud mcnasby we're going to have a day presented by michael beard we're going to have a day presented by allison smith of portatree and a couple other surprises along the way plus we'll be giving away a lot of free stuff both from Portatree and from This Is Bracket Racing Elite. So if you are not already a member of that Facebook group, join us. You can search it on Facebook. It is, you just type in off-season practice tree challenge and it should come up. Again, it is the This Is Bracket Racing off-season practice tree challenge and it kicks off Monday the 29th. Awesome deal, Luke. Uh, you and KB and everybody that's uh, going to guest, uh, be a guest there with you are sure to help a lot of people. Again, it's free, guys. Couldn't ask for better. These guys put as much work into this as they do any paid service they offer. So take advantage of it, get out there and learn a few things about good practice and how you can improve your racing program. And I know it's going to help a lot of people. 3,500 signed up. Wow. That's huge. Luke. So a uh, little cleanup work that we talked about earlier in the show, talked about Doug Foley's big weekend last weekend. It was at the race shop shootout. Don't know. <laughs> 
the names or promoters. It was kind of secretive, Luke. It was the secretive Dre Shop shootout. Mark said that he found the Facebook page, and we were just looking for a location. It said PM for location. So I don't know if that was like at somebody's house. They won't let the address out. I don't know if they were trying to hide something from the authorities. But wherever it was, Doug Foley cracked them at the Race Shop shootout two weeks ago and then followed that up with a strong performance at the dragstersforsale.com shootout last weekend. And he is this week's Seabrook Performance. Who's hot? <laughs> All right, guys, that wraps up this episode of the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. Again, awesome show. Had a lot of fun. I want to say thanks to our sponsors, of course, Seabrook Performance, the AHRA, the fifth annual Southern Big Buck Nationals, the Great American Bracket Race and Dream Team Challenge. And uh, certainly thanks out to our, our buddy Sherman Adcock Jr. for joining us and taking us down memory road and some old school stuff. I uh, appreciate each and every one of those folks helping us bring the podcast to you. And certainly you, the listener, thank you so much. We want you to tell us what you think. Certainly uh, give you the opportunity to message us on uh, Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page. By the way, has absolutely blown up, exploded from uh, last week's CDL and DOT Laws show. Uh, thank you guys so much. It's been a ton of feedback. A huge response has reached tens of thousands of people with uh, well over 100 shares on the topic that we discussed. So, guys, thank you so much. Keep that coming. We love the feedback, and I think there's been some great discussion that has uh, occurred as a result of that show and, and you listeners being so passionate about it. So thank you. Keep that coming on the Facebook page. Certainly reach out to us on Twitter if you like to uh, tweet. Uh, Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. And I am at JP11X. Thank you guys for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the show. And we certainly look forward to talking to you again next week. Banging on the door. Bump, bump, bump until I get it in. Attitude like I am already winning in. Foot breaking in anything. Bottom bobbing for a 10. I'm rolling in the cutty. Switching feet like Jerry Pennington. I was in my truck. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th. <laughs>